Welcome to another episode of the TMX Crossing Intense podcast, which, listeners, is, as you know, humanity's last best hope for an adult conversation about market structure. And this is our third episode, which may not seem like a lot to you listeners, but in podcast years, you have to multiply times five to get to human years. So three times five, that makes us teenagers. We aren't ready to vote yet, but we can drive. And today we're going to have that conversation about adverse selection. Here to impose that adult supervision is our maestro of market structure, the man who the Globe and Mail one time called a guru, my co-host, Doug Clark. Thanks, Corey. Happy to be here. And as days before recording started, we had a settlement in the Hollywood writer's strike. So we're now back. There's no AI and we're able to do the podcast again. We're very happy. I'm so glad to be back at work, Doug, aren't you? I certainly am. By the way, there's no AI here. This is all spontaneous human interaction here, and it's totally not awkward. Today, in a new tradition for our podcast, we're going to have a special guest who I'm not going to introduce you to yet because he's going to come in and hopefully solve all of our problems. First, Doug, though, I feel like we need to define what those are. Doug, I feel like the regulators, the academics, the practitioners, they sometimes like to use big words to confuse us. Adverse selection is a word that I hear a lot out there in the markets. It sounds ominous, yet vague and undefinable, like something they try to prosecute you for in court, but the evidence is never enough. It's too high a standard. Maybe you can help us here. What is this adverse selection and why should we be caring about it as investors? And the reason we're here today is there is a recent paper out from the Bank of International Settlement. It rhymes with a number of papers we've seen over the last dozen plus years saying that adverse selection impacts our markets in a negative way. It's a small percentage of trades adversely select the rest of the marketplace, but the result is impactful and it harms the overall market quality. What is adverse selection? It's when somebody only trades against you when you're going to lose. So if you think about a business that's having a poor year, what employees do you lose? You lose the top employees, the top sales guy, the top producer, the top strategist. You don't lose those employees that are kind of hoping to leave anyway. If you think about it in a game of poker, if you have a pair of aces and you play and hold them, there's four hearts down on the board. If you bet, the only, but the only person that's gonna call you is somebody that has that flush. So it's a bad bet because you're only ever going to get called by somebody that can beat you. In market terms, it's when you place a bidder offer, a passive order into a marketplace, if you're only getting traded against when somebody has better information, is faster, is effectively running you over, and the market is going to be trading against you over the next short period of time, that's adverse selection. The paper that I highlighted, the Bank of International Settlement, which is one of many got some proprietary data in Europe. They came to the conclusion that in dark pools, roughly 4% of the volume was traded at a stale quote, was adversely selected. We've seen similar papers in Canada with a similar type of number, 4%. We've seen slightly higher numbers in the US. And we've seen papers around what happens when tools like microwave networks that are used for this aren't working because of bad weather conditions and how the market quality overall gets better. You get deeper, more breadth of market makers with tighter quotes and more stable quotes. And so the question I think is, A, is this real? Is this just an academics group dream or do we see it from the practitioner view? B, what can marketplaces do about it? And C, are marketplaces picking winners and losers? And if so, is that something they should be doing? 
See, I find this confusing, this idea that I could place a quote or a trade and somehow regret it. If I come to the market and I post a bid for whatever price I want, whatever number of shares I want, and someone executes that with me, why would I be unhappy to be filled, to have my limit order executed? I mean, that's what I came to the market to do. It was to trade this quantity at this price. How could I be unhappy about that? Let's think about insider trading for a moment. If you're a buyer and you find out the only time that somebody's selling to you is it's the CEO or the CFO of a company who has non-material public information and they're selling to you, you're going to go, that's not a good trade. They were never going to trade with me when I was going to win. They were only going to trade with me when I was going to lose. These are players who have a speed advantage. They've paid for it. There's nothing unethical or illegal what they're doing, but they are only ever trading when they see news coming out of Washington, economic news, or they see some sort of change on the Chicago futures market or the Montreal futures market, and they're going and trading against the market. They're never trading with you when you're going to look like you're winning a second later. They're only trading with you when you're going to lose a second later. So to be clear, it's this speed advantage that we'll be talking about today. It's not necessarily the insider trader, although that's a great example, who comes and executes with me when he has material, non-public information that my price is wrong. But it's when someone has paid to move faster than me. That's the problem we're talking about today? Yes, and we're talking about people that are moving at a speed that is beyond the norm for the market. We're not saying everybody should be riding a horse and buggy or even driving a Ford Temple on the roads. But if somebody has a rocket ship and everybody else is driving cars, we want to protect them. They've made an investment. And again, let's be very clear. High frequency trading is a number of strategies, most of which and all of which in aggregate are almost certainly good for markets. They tighten spreads, they mute market impact, but there is this small sleeve of players who the academic and practitioner work suggests if you can mute them in some manner, and there are marketplaces that have done it, which we'll get to in a second. Other markets ourselves have done it in certain ways. If you can mute those participants, mute that advantage, it actually improves the overall marketplace for everybody else. And I took a look at a couple of the papers that you gave me. Let's just get a sense of the magnitude of this problem that we want to fix here today, or at least make a stab at fixing. There's a paper by Aquilina, Budish, and O'Neill. This is one that recently got published, saying that it's a remarkably large proportion of trading volume, around 20% in certain markets, is accounted for by firms that are racing to execute against what they regard to be a stale quote. And they come up with a really interesting way of measuring this. They look at orders that failed to execute because another order just executed. These are called races to get to stale quotes. By their computation, this strategy called latency arbitrage, or just racing, it imposes a roughly half a basis point tax on trading. That is, prices are about half a basis point worse than they would be so that people can compensate themselves for the risk of getting this adverse selection. You know, half a basis point doesn't sound like a lot, but multiplied by the huge trading volume that there is on exchange every day and every year, it can turn into a fairly large cost for people who are trying to trade. Yeah, exactly. If you think we trade in Canada somewhere between 15 and $17 billion of stock in a given day, you don't have to multiply that by a very big number to come up with a real impact. And that impact is being worn by retail investors, either direct investing themselves or investing through pension plans, mutual funds, and ETFs. So today we have a very special guest, literally the perfect guest here to help us, again, try to solve this problem or at least make a stab at it. 
We have Rizwan Awan, who's president of equity trading here at the TMX Group. He's a guy who uh, I've known about in the market structure circles, like Doug himself, as well as Alex Perel and Peter Haynes, who's been working on improving uh, Canadian equity markets for a lot of his career. And now happily, we have him here at the TMX Group, and he's got a great idea, maybe. Well, uh, Riz, uh, I should say, you're kind of our boss. So if we ask you some hard questions here, you know, you're not going to get us fired, are you? Well, first of all, uh, good morning, everyone. And thanks for having me, Corey and Doug. It's a pleasure to be here. And no, just to be clear, we're all market structure aficionados. So nobody's getting fired over asking challenging questions. In fact, this is the stuff we live for. This is the stuff that makes our markets better. So Riz, I'd like to know a little bit about your perspective on this adverse selection problem. Do you think it's a big problem for Canada? Is this something that we should be worried about in this jurisdiction or is this something elsewhere? Yeah, I want to just take a step back. I, I you know, just heard the opening statements around uh, adverse selection and just take a view on adverse selection itself that, look, adverse selection is not something that's new to the game just because of speed in this day and age. Adverse selection has been around since the beginning of time, right? And if you think about adverse selection, anytime anybody's got any sort of speed advantage, there is an element of adverse selection to the person that does not. Right, So the person with the speed advantage is going to be the one that will win that race on information every single time. And that's a manifestation that started from way back in the day, from the time of like Paul Revere going and ringing the bell, uh, forewarning everyone that, hey, the troops are coming, to in this day and age where you've got microseconds of speed advantage going on between the various high-frequency traders. The thing is, with all, all of them, there's one constant. That is, there's only one winner in the speed race, mm. right? It is an arms race for speed. So in that sort of an environment, what we're really here talking about is how do we make sure that there is a fair level playing field for all the participants involved and not just the first mover? This idea about being, you know, adverse selection is always existing. It reminds me of these lovely pictures that we get of Wall Street in the old days when there was a canopy of wires hanging over the street. And that was from all the brokers who had run telegraph wires into the exchange. So they could be the first ones to see the prices move, and they could also be the first ones to sit to modify their orders back at the exchange. We've always wanted to have a speed advantage when trading. It's just that in modern times that has compressed, 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 and now the speed advantage is measurable in milliseconds. I would say even further than milliseconds, even going to microseconds with the microwave towers that we've got in place that have fractional improvements over one another. The issue is that you know if you think about the entire ecosystem, each participant in the ecosystem has been rewarded for that speed advantage. High frequency traders, that one's obvious. First mover wins the trade, makes money off of it. But even the brokers that are then supporting and enabling these high frequency traders, as well as the marketplaces themselves, they also benefit from having this additional amount of liquidity on their marketplace. So historically, if you think about what marketplaces have prioritized as in their product roadmap, and what it is that they're catering towards is speed and price. That's it. Those are the two sort of main elements that have historically been the bastions of where competition lies in marketplaces. And we're looking to change that. So is there any solution to this? It feels like we just have to live with it, right? I mean, so long as we have an open market where everybody can come and they can say what price they'd be willing to trade at and how many shares they would like, anyone who can access the exchange or the trading platform indeed is just as free to come and trade as anybody else. I mean, it's kind of a, as you said, it's historical. It's an artifact of markets. What can we do about this? Yeah, so if we look at the marketplaces today, speed and price, 
for sure. Those are the two elements that we're going to look at. But there is a third dimension. There is a dimension where marketplaces of late have started innovating and building out solutions to try and democratize this element of speed. You know, again, in the famous words of Ricky Bobby from Talladega Nights, if you ain't first, you're last. Well, how can we design marketplaces that will allow multiple participants to be first? That's really the name of the game of what we're trying to do here. And as we think about it, speed and price, there's a time and place for it. So I'm not discounting those types of markets at all. You know, there is a legit reason why those exist and they add value. In fact, that's the lion's share of trading that takes place today. But what we're looking to do is start innovating in a third dimension, which is how do we optimize for trade execution itself? Okay. So let's get involved a little bit into the dirty details of this. There's a lot of ways that one could address this problem. And you're right, you know, it doesn't have to be on all markets. It could just be on one. I don't know, Doug, surely somebody in somewhere around the globe has figured out a way to address this problem. I mean, are we coming up with a Canada cute, fancy new technology, or is this something that we might be taking a cue from others on? I think there are a number, probably the most famous would be IEX in the US coming out with the Flash Boys book. And that was originally a dark pool. And it's exactly the dark problem that this Bank of International Settlement paper talks about. And they said, the fastest guys know that the quote's about to change. They try and trade against our midpoint orders, and they may know about a quote change before we do. So in fact, they're trading against an actual stale midpoint. So all we're going to do is we're going to slow everybody down by, in their case, 350 microseconds. And that means that our market is going to have the true midpoint when we trade, as opposed to trading at a midpoint because they saw a quote change microseconds or nanoseconds before we did. That worked. It became the biggest dark pool in the US in less than a year. And you had all of these established broker-owned dark pools and some independents sort of laughing at them, saying it's a trick, it's a gimmick. No, clients realized that when they went there, they could put greater size and they weren't only trading when they were going to be a loser. And so they did. They put larger size. They had larger size orders. They had better so-called markouts, which is just looking at what is the quote a half second or a second after I trade. If I'm a buyer, is the quote lower? And if, as a result, I could have bought it lower. Am I just having winner's curse? And by all metrics, IEX had better markouts, better fill quality than any of the established players. We've seen marketplaces in Europe, we've seen ATSs in the US, our own alpha market up in Canada created a speed bump that has been copied around the world in not just equity markets, but futures markets as well, where the liquidity providers were able to place orders and get out of the way when they saw that the market was coming their way. There's a number of solutions. They're all trying to solve for the same problem. It's a well-known problem. For the most part, it has been solved by up-and-coming new players. It hasn't been solved by legacy exchanges. I think our alpha example is one of the few where an incumbent exchange has done it. That said, that market, for economic reasons, is good for some participants. It's not good for all participants. So. What we're going to talk about is how do we take that solution and make it more universal? So wait a minute, this is being solved everywhere. And you brought up that some of these solutions are good for certain clients. Some of these solutions are better for other clients. Who is getting hurt by this adverse selection that everyone is scrambling to solve this problem globally and now in Canada? Like what client base is it that cares about this, you know, somewhat esoteric problem? 
I think that the more quantitative the end client, the more likely they are to pay the cost of some of these markets. These markets are more costly on average than other markets, not just in terms of pure economics, but in terms of latency. So when you think about having something delayed for a few hundred microseconds or even a few milliseconds, for the firms that aren't measuring fill quality, why am I waiting? Why am I being patient? I want my fill now, now, now. Three milliseconds doesn't seem like a long time, but why, if I don't know the difference between the fills, why am I waiting three milliseconds? The firms that are maybe more thoughtful and quantitative understand that waiting a few hundred microseconds to a handful of milliseconds can lead to an overall smaller market impact, a better fill for the larger over-the-day order. And as a result, the end clients do better, the performance of the fund is better. Okay, so let's get into the details then. How is it that we're going to address this client base? I think numbered among them are, for example, a lot of the market makers, the people who post standing orders for us on exchanges so that we have the opportunity to execute. What's the plan here to introduce something for them and how big of a change is it going to involve for the TMX group? Sure, so maybe I can start off by explaining what it is that we're doing. We launched two new order books, two new marketplaces, essentially Alpha X and Alpha Dark. Alpha X is a visible marketplace, much like the type of markets you see on TSX, the Toronto Stock Exchange, the Toronto Venture Exchange, as well as our existing Alpha Marketplace. Alpha X, what's different about it this time around is that we have a new order type that we're introducing, and it's called the Smart Limit Order Type. And we'll get into some details on the Smart Limit Order Type on how it essentially democratizes the notion of speed for all. But let me park that for a second and just go on to the other marketplace. Alpha Dark is the other marketplace that we are looking to introduce. That's a dark marketplace, as the name implies. So no visible pre-trade transparency, but post-trade you get your fill. And that marketplace, again, has certain features that democratizes speed. Both of them have an element of some sort of a delay. We're targeting three milliseconds to slow down the incoming order so that the passive side has time to react, right? So how they react is different depending on the marketplace. So on uh, the visible marketplace, again, we'll come back to the smart limit in a second. On the dark marketplace, we have an order called smart peg, which reacts to the changing environment around them. So they have roughly a three millisecond head start to the rest of the world. Okay. So before we get in these orders, Doug, uh, you know better than me, how many marketplaces do we have in Canada? We have 13. We have 13. And now we're digging it up to 15? Yes. That's less than 20% growth. So I guess that's good. Do we really need more marketplaces? Can't we just graft this onto one of the existing marketplaces? Well, that's a great question. It's one that we get asked all the time. Why do we need yet more marketplaces? Don't we have enough already? I take it back to some of the earlier comments we're making around choice and having the ability to innovate beyond the dimensions of speed and price. If you think about even the 13-odd marketplaces that exist today, the vast majority, in fact, almost all of them, with the exception of Alpha and one other marketplace, are all catered towards speed and price. There is very little innovation that's going on beyond those two dimensions. Now, for us to think about adding more marketplaces, that was a decision that we did not take lightly. We do believe uh, you know, we have to cater to our end clients and we have to make markets better. And the notion of adding two more marketplaces is not something that we took lightly. We had to go back to it only on principle because the first 
three marketplaces that we've got in Canada right now. In fact, there's two real order books, Toronto Stock Exchange and Alpha. They come at completely different price points. And we're not able to innovate on those marketplaces because, you know, as Doug mentioned earlier, the economics of those marketplaces will not allow for what we're trying to do. Hence the reason to introduce a couple more order books, which offer a different price point, but more importantly, give us a sandbox for innovation. You talked about economics. Couldn't we put some new limit order types on the existing alpha exchange with the speed bumps? So that was the original proposal. When we talked about the order types, we went to the street and we said, we're going to bring these order types. And the immediate feedback from the street was, do not do it on alpha. We don't want to pay to post. The economics of that in a commission-constrained world, if the clients are paying me 50 to 70 mils and I have to give you 30 40% of that just to post an order, we're not going to use that order type. And that's consistent with what we've seen in the U.S., but I think you have to understand that in an algorithmic age, once you've set up to markets, the number of markets isn't really the variable. It's do you get deterministic outcomes? Are they giving you unique liquidity, unique ability to capture that liquidity? If it's just another Me Too player, that's fragmentation without any benefit. There's a real benefit here. Now, have we got the numbers right in terms of pricing, in terms of latency? Have we optimized properly? That's the question that will be answered by the marketplace. But the street who typically don't love new marketplaces really came back to us and said, we kind of get this one and we kind of think it needs to be on a new marketplace. So there's where we ended up. Let's get into the limit order then. So I'm imagining myself, let's say I'm a market maker. I maintain a bid and an ask on the new exchange. Uh, let's go with the lit one right now. And I'm going to use your new smart order type. So talk me through how I'm going to turn this on and what, how it's going to be. You said something about a latency, uh, but as well, there's like a smartness involved in the limit order. How is it smart? Sure. So let's start with the, uh, the visible order book. So over there, you know, the order type that you're referring to is the smart limit order. The smart limit order is essentially an order type that any participant can use. And by the way, this is one of the things that at TMX that we firmly believe in is whatever order type that we provide has to be available to all participants. We don't segment the types of orders that we provide by participant type. So whether you're an HFT, whether you're a natural player, whether you're an asset manager, small, big, whatever the case might be, anybody can use this order type. Smart limit order type. So how does that actually work? And how is it actually working to improve execution quality? Once you place that bid and offer, we've got this proprietary signal, which we call the quote decay signal or QDS for short. And what this signal is doing, it's looking at all the parameters in the marketplace, some 300 plus parameters in the marketplace in real time and calculating the probability of a quote that's about to crumble or decay in the next few milliseconds. Decay, crumble, okay. So again, I'm thinking to myself, okay, and just to be clear, you know, a limit order is a price at which I'm willing to execute some quantity. I don't ordinarily think of limit orders being like uh, ancient Greek architecture in the sense that the weather sort of causes them to erode and decay. Like what is this idea about crumbling? This comes back to our notion of adverse selection, right? You don't necessarily want to execute on a quote that's about to decay or imminently about to decay in the next uh, few milliseconds. And we really are talking about micro and milliseconds here. We're not talking about holding up an order for any meaningful amount of time. So as this signal turns on, as it's listening to the world around it, and it turns on and says, hey, I think the quote's about to crumble or decay in the next few milliseconds, it fires a signal into our engine, our trading engine. 
And then the trading engine then takes all the smart limit orders that have been placed on the bid or offer. So if you're buying on the bid or selling on the offer, it moves it one penny wide and further away from the imminent crumbling quote that's about to happen. Now, again, all of this is a probability-based game. This is not something that is an absolute science, but given the backtesting that we've done on the models that we built and, you know, I have to throw in the word AI because uh, that is what we've actually used to good effect over here to and optimize. that's how you sell something in 2023. <laughs> that's right. Everything's got to be AI, right? Yeah. So as we've optimized the model using, uh, you know, our own proprietary algorithms here, it's giving us results that are comparable to the best marketplaces in the world that have done this in the past. Okay, so it's kind of like you're negotiating for me. Instead of me changing my limit order price when I think the market's wrong, it's like TMX is gonna change my limit order price when the market's wrong. Like why, Doug, these guys, they should be perfectly capable of doing this themselves, shouldn't they? So we introduced the speed bump on alpha a little less than a decade ago. We were one of the first marketplace to do such a thing and the, the alpha one was unique. And for the liquidity providers, the fastest players in the world, the guys who could do their own analysis and create their own quote decay signal, whether it's AI driven or not, that speed bump was enough for them to know that the market was about to go south and for them to pull their bids or offers, whether they move them back a penny or just cancel them altogether. But for the agency players, the broker dealers who were representing institutional flow, the vast, vast majority of them, 90 whatever percent, were unable or unwilling to build those products. They have other problems to solve. It's a massive investment. So basically what our signal has done is democratize that ability so that it's not just liquidity providers who are getting the benefit of this type of a speed bump. It can be got by anybody within the marketplace. So it's a little like centralizing infrastructure, like uh, we're going to solve the problem once so that everyone who doesn't want to solve it themselves gets to do it. So lower operational cost for the market if we just have one thing that does it right instead of everyone having to do their own thing. Exactly. You don't want to build your own roads. You don't want to build your own airport. You want to use common goods for everybody. Okay, so it's like a public goods problem. That's interesting, that's interesting. And this happens a lot in infrastructure, I feel like, that we're solving like tragedies of the commons, like everyone having to invest in their own quote decay signal, and said the group will just do one. And the joy is, if there are players out in the market that have a better quote decay signal than ours, they can still use that. The speed bump will still allow them to use their strategies. So we're not impacting the existing liquidity providers who have been active users of our existing alpha model, for example, but we have provided a quote decay signal that is of a level that is very, very good. Are there folks in the world who maybe can do better? Maybe. And if they can, they're welcome to do that, but we're still going to protect liquidity providers using our order type from the bulk of the adverse selection that we think is the issue. So it's optional. If you go to the main market, you can participate in a wide open market where there's no smart limit order, no latency, speed bump. You can go to alpha where there's a market with a speed bump, but no smart limit order, or there's going to be a new exchange, alpha X, where there's a smart limit order. And that's a good way to put it, right? Like it's a gradient, right? You can go all the way from the absolute no holds barred to one where we basically put on some training wheels for the market. Very good. All right. So that's enough about the lip market. There's two of these things, 20% growth. So let's talk about the one that is now in the dark. And we've talked about the darkness on some of our other podcasts. Uh, a lot of people, they hear something is dark, and I feel like they think that that means that something nefarious is going on within that institution. 
Yeah, we told the story on a previous podcast, but it bears repeating that the first real successful dark pool in the U.S. was something called Posit. It was a coming together of 11 buy-side firms, mostly in Boston, 1987, and they felt that when they sent orders down to the trading floor, the specialists were trading against them. So when they had large orders, 100,000, a million shares, they would put it into an auction to try and trade against one another. There was no transparency. So if you were a buyer of a million IBM, you'd throw an order into the pool. If you got some sort of fill, great. If not, nobody else knew that your order existed. And then you could just go back to trading on the exchange. And it was sort of a lottery ticket if you won. The exchanges didn't like it because it was competition. So instead of calling it an auction, they started calling it a dark pool because it sounded nefarious. And they would talk to the regular about, oh, we've got to be wary of these dark pools. And sure enough, you watch the media nowadays. John Stewart had a, an episode of The Problem last year, his HBO or Apple TV show. And he was talking about market structure. And he said, you know, dark pools are nefarious. They must be. They called themselves dark pools. They didn't call themselves dark pools. Somebody labeled them that because it made it easy to sell against them. Dark pools are just a place to trade where you don't have pre-trade transparency. When I'm trying to trade 500 shares, I'm not going to move the market. The market's not going to run away because of the size of my trade. When I'm an institution, a pension plan, trying to trade a million shares, I have to hide some of my intent. Otherwise, the market is just going to move you know, 50 cents a dollar in, away from me, and that's not good for my overall investors. So dark pools are trying to solve for that. You know, it's basically... Tools and uh, traders toolkit, right? You have dark pools, visible marketplaces. Uh, there's all kinds of elements that a trader needs to decide and use their discretion in terms of you know using the right tool for the right job. Not everything is suitable for a dark pool, just like not everything is suitable for a visible marketplace. Okay, so we're setting up a new dark pool, and uh, as uh, Doug said, the exchanges don't typically uh, like it when a competitor sets up a dark pool, so I guess it's good that we're competing against ourselves. It's always uh, better to compete with yourself. What's the nature of this new exchange going to be, and is it an exchange or is it a trading platform? What we effectively have is a conditional order where the client has said, I am firm at this price, but if there's an opportunity, I will step up and trade, but I cede priority to all firm orders at a better price. So if a stock is 10 to 14 cents, I'm willing to trade at 10 cents. But if a seller comes in to sell at 12 in the dark, I'm behind anybody else that had firm dark orders at 12 cents, but I will come in and satisfy that, which is great for the seller at 12 cents who wasn't going to get complete. And it's great for the buyer a chance to step up, but it happens with a delay to make sure that it's happening at a price that is real and not a price that's about to shift. I am, again, imagining market making. I could be in the dark. I could be in the lit. And I post bids and asks for other people to come and trade at. And I'm a sophisticated market maker. You know, I'm me. Of course, I'm sophisticated. But I'm not maybe as fast as some as you people. So what is this technology going to do to the sorts of prices that I am willing to offer on the trading platform? So, again, the speed bump alone means that even if you're not using the order type, you can place an order at say the midpoint, but if you have your own signal that says the midpoint's about to go, you can reduce your order back. Or if you don't have that speed yourself, if you can't do that within three milliseconds, you can use our order type to do that for you. Effectively, it's going to say, here's where you're sitting. We will step up in the event that there's an opportunity. So a number of different ways to use it. But really all we're doing is we're saying that very tail fastest player 
is not got the opportunity to just pick off stale quotes. What is this going to do to the sort of prices I'm willing to offer? And the answer is it's going to make them tighter. What will this do to the sorts of prices that I'm willing to offer on the exchange? It's not just the price, but it's the size. But if I can trade with more confidence that I'm not getting picked off by that 4% that we talked about earlier, I can quote greater size at a tighter spread. That's what the academics have told us. That's what the practitioner work has told us. And that's all of this story is let's mute that one small, tiny sleeve of one strategy that has detrimental impacts on market and everything else gets better, not just for natural participants, but for liquidity providers as well. I love this mention of the academic literature. It reminds me of my old days at the Bank of Canada when I used to read papers and instead of you know trying to go around and get, uh, get things done. One of the papers that we all paid attention to was a series of papers from Budish where he both modeled and measured the impact of these adverse selection strategies. And what he found is if you think about a market maker who's worried that somebody will trade with him right when the price on some other venue moves, creating an arbitrage opportunity and therefore a cost for that market maker, he's going to be less willing to offer the size that you talked about as well as as good a price. Like this person might uh, offer a slightly worse lower bid or slightly higher ask because of the fear that at the price he posted, he's going to get, as you call it, picked off or it'll be trading at a price which is an arbitrage opportunity with another market. So what these guys have done, and you know, we said this at the beginning, is they've tried to quantify the size of that latency arbitrage. And the number that they get is enormous. And I think a cool result in this paper is they use some heuristics to try to get at the size for Canada. They actually go jurisdiction by jurisdiction and talk about the size in the markets. They don't have our private data. It's too bad. We do enable research here at the TMX group, but they use some kind of rules of thumb to guess at what our data might have looked like based on the data they had. And they get a number of at least 26 million a year at TMX that we might be trying to save people. It's not a small innovation potentially if people jump onto the, these two new trading platforms. It could potentially save people quite a bit of money. I think the academic literature was, should be taken as a kind of mandate in a way and something that people have been asking for more and more markets to do. So I'm kind of happy to see that y'all are doing it up here in Canada. I used to go to your events at the Bank of Canada, and that's where we first met. And the beautiful thing about those events was a coming together of academics and practitioners. Sometimes the academics had a blind spot and they didn't understand workflow what? issues. True, hateful, hate to say it, but they didn't understand <laughs> that, you know, people trade at the close and maybe it's not always optimal, but it's because they're benched against the close or there's some other workflow issues that's driving behavior that the academic doesn't fully appreciate. And the practitioners just didn't have the ability to parse the data with that academic precision. And so bringing the parties together, that's what we're trying to do here. That's, I think, a large part of why the TMX brought you on board was how do we get the great ideas and the great data insights, but then also work with our clients to understand what part of this can we make work within your clearing operations on your EMS and all the various things that have to work. Academics live in a world of frictionless planes mm -hmm. and we know that frictionless planes don't actually happen, but what they tell us about the world from that frictionless plane can then be moved into the real world scenarios. And that's what we're trying to do with this market and in general. Okay, everybody, we've about elapsed our time. And also, I think we've exhausted this subject. We've got adverse selection here, not only the 
the statement of the problem, but here a potential solution coming out of, I think, some of the innovative ideas here at the TMX Group. We hope the market will like it. They are optional. For example, you don't want to use them. You don't have to. We will see what the market says about these exchanges. And although we hope that it's a success, it really is up to the clients to see if these things work. So you will be the judge of our work. And we look forward to showing you what we've got here uh, coming up in just a few weeks. Stay tuned for that on your most proximate trading terminal. And at that, I think we should uh, bid everyone adieu. So uh, thank you so much, Riz, President of Equity Markets here, as well as the maestro, Doug Clark, for joining us today on the podcast. Thanks, Corey. Thanks for having me on Crossing Intense. Thank you. Thank you for listening to TMX Presents Crossing Intense. And thank you for joining us on our third episode now of the uh, Crossing Intense podcast. For more information on TMX markets, visit www.tsx.com. Or for more information on the Montreal Exchange, please visit m-x.ca. And for more insights from capital markets leaders and my TMX colleagues, please visit tmx.com forward slash POV.